was a reading group on Simon Dono's Individuation in Light of Notions of Form and Information, uh, Volume 2. We're reading the text, or sorry, we're, we're reading the, the chapter called Individuation and Invention in the text, um, the complement, complement on the consequences of the notion of individuation. We're picking up from page 419 of the translation. So last time we saw um, the beginning of the text of, of the, the chapter on invention. We saw his argument about the technician, the figure of the technician as this pure individual. So other social roles have this um, communitarian aspect to them. So um, a king or an old man or uh, a youth or whatever social role. And the technician is this pure individual. Uh, and so he points to uh, figures like Thales, who was able to predict the, the olive crop and um, buy up the crop and make a, a lot of money. So this, this figure of the technician is where we see the origin of philosophy in the ancient Greek world, the uh, engineer who has a, a military role in uh, the city-state. Um, He's also the one who sort of first starts recording philosophical speculation of, of various kinds um, and uh, in particular um, starts to question or to differ from the existing religious uh, explanations of phenomena. Uh, and um, we see that some of the early pre-Socratics um, give non-religious explanations, what we would call, I guess, mechanical explanations of different phenomena of, you know, the formation of uh, living beings, um, and uh, in particular, um, Democritus uh, and Epicurus have um, atomistic explanations for how entities come to be formed. And then we also have, so he argues that there's a sort of a normativity of the technical object that sort of surpasses or it is outside of the normativity of the community in which it, the technical object is created. So technical objects have their own uh, normativity. They, they, have, uh, they set up their own norms of functioning. Uh, and, and so they serve as a sort of principle of transformation of a society or, or of a collective uh, group of, of individuals. They don't integrate um, into the existing society in a straightforward way. They they transform the set of norms that are that are uh, present in that society. Uh, and he so he um, he defines um, or he he introduces this distinction between a community and a society, um, where a community is uh, a grouping in which you have uh, a sort of predetermined um, set of roles for the, the members of that community. Um, and uh, on the other hand, a society is uh, a grouping of individuals that has uh, an openness to it. And, and every grouping of, of humans is both a community and a society at the same time. So these are sort of two aspects of uh, a collective, um, but there's a, a, an antagonism between them. So you can't um, understand you can't understand collectives um, without understanding both sides at the same time. And then he talks about um, the uh, the role of um, invention in 
in sort of instigating the openness of the society. Um, and uh, it's only in connection with this openness uh, of the society that something like freedom is possible. Um, it's, it's the capacity to create um, a sort of uh, uh, self-generated value um, or, or self-generated set of values. Um, so freedom here doesn't have to do with freedom of choice, of selecting a, an option out of uh, some set of options, but rather of um, uh, generating a, a value or, or a set of values from within. Uh, and then, uh, let's see, where else we have? Uh, and then we saw um, a little bit about um, the artistic object. Um, um, which he assimilates to the technical object to some extent, um, uh, but also contrasts with it. Um, and so he talks about surrealism as this attempt to generate a, an art for art's sake or to preserve something like art for art's sake. Um, and the surrealist art object ends up becoming a sort of machine to produce an experience, a singular experience. Um, and and so it, it doesn't have the traditional role of uh, being beautiful, uh, or at least not necessarily beautiful, um, but it produces an experience. Uh, but then the, the, the sort of danger for any um, artistic movement or, or innovation is that it can sort of be reincorporated into a new uh, community so that the, um, the group of artists uh, in some avant-garde movement uh, can can form like a, a new community uh, of of precisely the people that you know get this new art movement, um, and and so the what on the one hand serves as a, a sort of uh, instigation of openness can be used on the other hand as a, a sort of formation of a, a new uh, a new community and a, a new closed grouping. Um, yeah, so this we can maybe compare this to um, the war machine and uh, uh, captured by the state in a thousand plateaus. Um, there's a, a similar sort of dynamic um, uh, where you have something that can sort of escape from uh, the uh, integrated community, and and then something that in that same escape can again be reincorporated. Uh, I think that's about where we left off. Oh, no, sorry. The one, one last bit is about um, the machine and uh, what exactly a machine is and how it differs from a living being. Uh, and so he argues that a machine, as, as opposed, we have to understand a machine as opposed to a tool. So a tool um, extends or um, uh, protects uh, an individual living being. So uh, you can think of a hammer as a, a fist, but hardened and uh, that doesn't feel pain. Um, there's um, like any any tool is is just an extension of the capacities of uh, a living organism, whereas a machine stands in for the living organism, and um, there's a it's a sort of replacement for a living organism. And but unlike a living organism, it's not capable of revolting. Uh, and this is uh, what Imodon takes as uh, especially characteristic of a living being, whether it's a, an animal or a human, is that it can 
choose not to work or decide not to work, um, whereas a machine can only malfunction. Uh, and so the slave can uh, uh, decide, you know, no matter how unlikely it is that I'm going to succeed, I'm going to try to escape, I'm going to revolt. Um, uh, whereas the machine can only malfunction, um, even if we sometimes talk about uh, a machine refusing to work, uh, that's always sort of a metaphorical usage. Uh, and so um, machines can be uh, um, adapted, so they can have a homeostatic um, operation, they can work in such a way that they um, preserve a certain uh, goal state or, or maintain a certain goal state, um, but they can't uh, operate on their own um, system of operation in the sense that uh, the whatever, if you have a thermostat, for example, that is set up to preserve temperature, uh, you, the thermostat can't decide, um, you know, I don't want to preserve temperature anymore, I'm going to preserve um, pressure instead or something like that, uh, whereas a living being is capable of, uh, and especially a human that has uh, freedom in the sense that he wants to use it, uh, a living being uh, is, and a human is capable of operating on its own uh, operation and selecting uh, a principle of operation. Uh, and so this is what distinguishes um, uh, a living individual and a human in particular from uh, a machine. So that's, I think, where we left off. Um, I'll let someone else read from starting from this characteristic of discontinuity on page 419, uh, if someone else would like to pick up from there. Yeah, I can read. This characteristic of discontinuity, this existence of thresholds, does not appear in the automaton since the automaton does not change structure. It does not incorporate the, it does not incorporate the information that it acquires into its structure. There is never an incompatibility between the structure that the automaton possesses and the information that it acquires because its structure in advance determines what, which type of information it can acquire. Thus, there is never a veritable problem of integration for the automaton, but merely a question of the, the preservation of information that is by definition integrable, since information is homogeneous with respect to the structure of the machine that has acquired it. Conversely, the individual possesses an open faculty for acquiring information, even if this information is not homogeneous with respect to its actual structure. Thus, in the individual, a certain margin remains between the actual structure and the acquired information, which, since it is heterogeneous with respect to the structure, requires the being's successive recastings and its capacity to call, it, to call itself into question. This capacity to itself be one of the terms of the problem to be resolved does not exist for the machine. The machine has questions to solve, not problems, because the terms of the difficulty that the machine must resolve are homogeneous. On the contrary, the individual must resolve a difficulty that is not expressed in terms of, of homogeneous information, but consists of an object term and a subject term. This is why the teleological mechanism of technical beings is universally constituted by a circular causality. The signal of the difference between, pursued, between the pursued goal and the effectively attained result is fed back to the controls of the machine so as to direct a functioning that diminishes the gap that has caused the signal. This reactive causality adapts the machine, but in the case of the individual, the signal is not that of a discrepancy between an effective result and a desired result. It is that of a dissymmetry between two finalities, 
one realized as structure, the other of which is imminent to a set of information that is still enigmatic and nevertheless imbued with value. Clarity and compatibility do not appear in this virtual system unless the problem is resolved due to a structural change in the individual subject according to an action that creates a veritable relation between the previously structured individual and its new charge of information. The notion of adaptation remains insufficient to account for the reality of the It is, in fact, a question of a self-creation through abrupt leaps that reform the structure of the individual. The individual in its milieu does not merely encounter elements of exteriority to which it must adapt like an automatic machine. It encounters. It also encounters information imbued with value that calls into question the orientation of its own teleological mechanisms. The individual integrates information through self-transmutation, which defines it as a dynamically unlimited being. The individual problematic is beyond the rapport between the being and its milieu. This problematic, in fact, requires solutions through undercoming, through overcoming, and not through the reduction of a discrepancy between a result and a goal. The individual problematic can only resolve through constructions, through an increase of information according to a divergent determinism, and not through a calculation. All machines are like calculating machines. Their axiomatic is fixed for their whole operation, and the fulfillment of the operation does not reach, does not react upon the axiomatic. Conversely, the individual is a being in which the fulfillment of the operation reacts on the axiomatic via intense crises that are recasting into the continuity of the machine's functioning as opposed to the continuity interspersed with discontinuities that characterize the individual's life. Uh, this makes me think of the section from volume one where he talked about the collective as the resolution of the disparation between the uh, anabolic and catabolic uh parts of the system of like an individual life because there he talked about uh the mature individual as a member of the collective because it has developed these structures and functions but still retains the capacity to change them as the milieu changes and so the sort of automatism of the machine here seems more like the the way that um the like elderly individual um that has more, I guess, crystallized structures and functions, can't really adapt to the milieu, but only kind of iterates the same, uh, the same functions and behaviors over and over. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I think um, he, he makes a distinction a little bit earlier um, between uh, adaptation and learning. Uh, so, so he wants to distinguish between these two terms uh, where adaptation would be um, a sort of uh, accommodation to an environment, uh, and this is something that a machine is capable of. So you can you can have machines that have uh, a teleological behavior in the sense that they um, they have a goal state and they uh, measure some property of the environment to, to see whether they're in their goal state or not, uh, and then they do something to get closer to that goal state and then they measure again and so on. Um, and, and so this feedback loop, this is a, an adaptation mechanism. Um, and and uh, this is something machines are, are capable of doing uh, relatively, like even relatively simple machines um, like um, steam engines uh, in the 19th century had a, a governor that uh, operates in such a way that it, it prevents the machine from overheating. Um, 
it it slows the machine down if it gets too hot uh, or if it gets if it's uh, running too high um, uh, and then it it speeds the machine up if it's below a certain threshold um, uh, and so this is a, a relatively unsophisticated capacity of a machine whereas a living being has the capacity not just to accommodate to an existing environment but to um, integrate information that it receives uh, from the environment. And, and so here, information, we have to understand here, not just as a, a certain signal of information, um, but in, in the sense that he understands it uh, involving this disparation and the, a problem to be resolved. Um, so a, a living being is capable of solving a problem uh, and uh, not just of, uh, reducing the difference between a goal state and a, a, a measured state. And, and so in solving a problem, there's a, a certain creativity or um, innovation or, or something along those lines that is involved. Uh, so it's not just something that um, is a, a mechanical result of the initial conditions of the system, but there's a, a creativity involved in finding the solution to a problem. Uh, and what is um, characteristic of the, the mature individual, the individual at the peak of their powers is precisely that capacity to solve problems in, uh, in a creative way so that they aren't confined to a, a fixed repertoire of behaviors, whereas the young individual doesn't yet have the, the capacity to um, creatively solve problems, and then the older individual uh, no longer has that capacity because they have this fixed repertoire of of behaviors. Uh, so, so this uh, it's this capacity to solve problems creatively that is um, characteristic of of um, uh, of individuals of living beings uh, as opposed to machines. It seems like there's a relationship here between the individual's ability to call itself into question and the solution of a problem and the ability to sort of to redirect itself with regard to value, which I think is, is kind of the point he was making about the difference between the slave and the machine um, and why it's possible for the former to, to revolt. Um, because it can kind of change its valuation and decide not to work, as you put it earlier. But I'm not sure I totally understand how um, how that calling into question relates to revaluation. Yeah, I think the connection has to do with the way that value, um, as he described it at the beginning of this text, uh, value has to do with um, a sort of making coherent of or making compatible of different um, elements of, of action so that um, the the slave can can uh, you know sort of be um, safety or um, uh, uh, just sort of maintaining their their current position not making things worse and so on um, and and so that's a, a particular that's, that's a valuation um, sort of implicit in their action um, whereas they can, um, for whatever reason, um, or maybe no reason at all, they can um, decide that 
this uh, course of action, this um, preservation of safety or, or not making the situation worse is no longer sufficient for them. And they can decide that they're going to revolt or try to escape or whatever, uh, refuse to work. Um, they, and in doing so, they're sort of reformulating the priority of the, the different possible behaviors or different possible actions that they can take. Um, and whereas a machine uh, doesn't have that capacity to reorient itself and reprioritize its capacities, it, it has the ability to um, accommodate itself to um, a particular goal state and to, uh, uh, to act teleologically, but it doesn't have the capacity to determine the priority of those goals that it, it is operating in accordance with. Uh, it always has some fixed repertoire of uh, uh, goal states and actions that lead to um, uh, an approximation to that goal state. It doesn't have the capacity to call into question, um, you know, whether this goal is worth pursuing or, or whether a different goal is uh, a better one. Um, and so I think that's sort of what the connection is between um, values as as ways of uh, making actions compatible and, and prioritizing actions, uh, and then um, this capacity that the slave has to revolt, whereas the machine doesn't have that capacity. Um, I guess we can go on to the next bit, um, so I can read. Right. For this reason, reflection must refuse an identification between the automaton and the individual. The automaton can be fun the functional equivalent of life, for life includes functions of automatism, self-regulation, and homeostasis, but the automaton is never the functional equivalent of the individual. The automaton is communal and not individualized like a living being that can call itself into question. A pure community would behave like an automaton. It would elaborate a code of behaviors that is meant to prevent changes of structure and avoid the position of problems. The meaning of societies, which are synergistic groupings of individuals, on the contrary, lies in their search for the resolution of problems. So societies call their own existence into question, while communities seek to persevere in their being. Norbert Wiener has analyzed the way in which the community's powers of rigidity guarantee its homeostasis. The community tends to automatize the individuals that comprise it by giving them a pure functional state. From then on, the individual's capacity to call itself into question is dangerous for the stability of the Indeed, nothing guarantees the synchronism of individual transformation. The entire inter-individual relation can be broken by a pure individual initiative. Consequently, as a superior formal coefficient that conditions the functional value of an individual, effective stability becomes the fundamental criterion that allows for the ongoing integration of the individual. This guarantee of continuity is also a guarantee of social automatism. This stability is the correlate of the community's capacity to Yet these qualities of direct adaptation through assimilation and of structural stability define the perfect automaton. Every civilization requires a certain rate of automatism to guarantee its. Every civilization also needs the dynamism of societies, which alone have the capacity for a constructive and creative adaptation that does not lock itself into a stereotyped, unevolving, and hypertelic adaptation. Nevertheless, the human being is a fairly dangerous automaton that always risks inventing and equipping. The machine is an automaton that is superior to the human being, qua automaton since it is more precise in its teleological mechanisms and more stable in its characteristics. So here again, we see this opposition between community and society um, and the interaction between the two. So both are essential elements for any uh, 
collective of human beings, a, a civilization, as he puts it here. Um, there's a need for stability, um, which the communal side or the community side um, maintains. Uh, and then there's also a need for dynamism to prevent that community from becoming sort of stagnant. Uh, and that's what the society side um, provides. Uh, and so um, uh, a pure community, uh, a community without any society aspect would be uh, a sort of automaton. So it would uh, be adapted to a particular environment, but as soon as that environment changes, um, that community would be completely unadapted and it would have no capacity to uh, respond to changes in its environment. Uh, and of course, uh, human um, collectives or, or civilizations are always, to some extent at least, capable of adapting to changes in their environment. Uh, and the environment of a human collective is never static either. Um, uh, you know, this was sort of the traditional um, uh, colonial anthropology idea of the, the so-called primitive society uh, was like uh, supposed to be a, a static society where nothing changed. Um, uh, but of course, um, more recent, um, more recent uh, anthropology has shown that um, a lot of these societies have uh, have undergone significant changes um, like um, changing from a, a sedentary to a nomadic uh, way of life or, or the other way around and so on. Um, um, so there is no uh, static uh, collectivity of human beings. Uh, there's always transformation in, in the environment that they have to operate in. Uh, and so because of this, there can't be a pure community without any society aspect, without any sort of inner dynamism or capacity for transformation. Um, yeah, and it's interesting to sort of compare this with Marx. Um, uh, so, uh, and then this is also a sort of a difficult point in Marx's interpretation as well, because he gives sort of um, different pictures in different uh, parts of his work um, uh, of of what exactly the role of the of technical development is in relation to social development. So there are some passages where it seems like he's giving us a a sort of technological determinism, where um, the development of productive forces would be a sort of autonomous um, process, and it's just sort of reflected by social organization. Um, but other passages, and I think those are the more, um, I think the more sort of authoritative passages are are ones where he um, he describes uh, class struggle as the motor of history or the the sort of basis on which social change um, uh, rests, rather than the development of of the forces of production as a sort of autonomous process. Um, so there's a um, Rather than having like a, a, a technical determinism, there's a sort of complex interaction between the development of the productive forces and the um, the social interaction, uh, the class struggle within a given society. Uh, and in particular, when he talks about um, the development of machines in or, or the the introduction of machines into industrial production in uh, in uh, I think it's chapter 15 of Capital, Volume 1. Um, he uh, 
he talks about um, how machines are introduced uh, only or they, they become uh, adopted in uh, industry in particular as the um, working, uh, the uh, workers movement starts to become uh, effective in imposing uh, things like uh, restrictions of uh, the working day and so on. Um, so it's only once the workers are organized and start to be able to um, uh, bring about transformations of the social order, um, uh, even they're, though they're fairly limited, things like uh, a maximum working day. Uh, this leads to uh, uh, a different um, strategy for extracting surplus value. Um, so rather than just extending the working day as long as possible, the capitalist class has to introduce machinery uh, to um, increase the productivity of labor over a fixed working day. Um, and, and so there's a, uh, an interaction between the uh, social transformation and the technical transformation. And I think that's closer to what we see here with Simon Don, where um, there certainly isn't um, uh, a sort of social, uh, or, sorry, a sort of technical determinism where technical development would sort of automatically bring about social transformation. Um, there's um, um, there's uh, some sort of complicated interaction between social development and uh, technical development um, in, in Simon Don, uh, as there is in Marx. So um, I, I wouldn't want to say that it's, it's the same kind of interaction. Yeah, and I think you're right that there are there are sort of key passages, um, in particular the um, preface to the contributions to critique of political economy, which is sort of the the main place where Marx talks about method, um, is that preface, uh, and um, in that that passage, it uh, he he it it's easy to read what he writes there as um, being a sort of technical determinism where the forces of production develop autonomously and then social organization is just a, a, a product or a, a consequence of the development of productive forces. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, I don't wanna sort of uh, derail our discussion too much into Marx's interpretation, but um, I, I would argue that other passages are um, more, uh, more characteristic of his developed position, um, which is not a technical determinism. Um, uh, but yeah, again, that's a little bit aside from our uh, our topic for today. I can read from the next section. Yeah, let's uh, go on to the next section. Section four, the individuating attitude in the human relation to the invented technical being. The following question therefore arises, which values are engaged in the relation of the individual to the technical being. We would like to show that every attempt to constitute a symmetrical relation between man and the technical being is just as destructive for the values of the individual as for those of the technical being. Indeed, one can try to identify the machine with the individual or the individual with the machine in an equally destructive way. In the first case, the machine becomes a property of man, and man takes great pride in his creature and only produces it so as to subjugate it to the needs or uses of each individual thereby taking satisfaction from his mechanical servant down to his most singular fantasies. The taste for mechanisms in everyday life sometimes corresponds to an uninhibited desire to command through domination. Man behaves 
toward machines like a master toward his slaves, sometimes sometimes taking great joy in the excessive spectacle of their violent, dramatic destruction. This singular despotism of civilized man demonstrates a possible identification of man with mechanical beings. Circus games have evolved into competitions between machines, and gladiator fights have evolved into the demolition derbies of stock cars. Movies love to show the, spect- the spectacular destruction of mechanical beings. The vision of machines can take an epic turn. Man rediscovers a certain primitiveness in this vision. This attitude of man's superiority over the machine precisely corresponds above all to leisure activities, to the relaxation of humans no longer restrained by the community, whose compensation is simple tyranny over enslaved mechanical subjects. The inverse and complementary attitude is that of man and his communal function. There he serves the machine and is integrated into this faster machine that the community is by serving his particular machine according to the fundamental values of the code of automatism. For example, the speed of response to signals. Sometimes the machine itself bears, bears the recorders that will allow the community to judge the behavior of man at work, black box. The relation of the individual being to the community passes through the machine in a sufficiently industrialized civilization. Here the machine assimilates man by defining communal norms. Moreover, a supplementary norm a uh, supplementary normality arises from the machine when this normality is used to classify individuals according to their performances or aptitudes. No doubt it is never the machine that judges, since it is a pure automaton and is used only for calculating. But in order to be able to use the machine, men in their report of the machine must express themselves according to systems of information that are easily translatable with the machine's coding into a set of signals that have a meaning for the machine, i.e. that correspond to a determined functioning. This necessity for human action to be translatable into the language of of automatism leads to a valorization of the stereotypy of behaviors. Lastly, the quantity of information itself in a relation of individual to individual becomes an obstacle uh, to the transmission of this information via a path that utilizes automatism. For example, a civilization that adapts its means of communication to an automatic transmission of messages is led to replace the direct and particular expression of feelings in communal circumstances already subject to definite uses for more perfectly stereotyped formulas that are inscribed in fine print on an invoice at the Bureau of Departure and imprinted with ready-made formulas at the Bureau of Arrival. It then suffices to transmit the address of the addressee, the number of the formula, and the name of the sender. Here, the atypical individual becomes paralyzed in in his choice, since no predictive formula corresponds quite exactly to what he wanted to express. The atypical, which costs the community a very large expenditure of information, is a deficient being once information is indirectly transmitted from individual to individual through the intermediary of a device that utilizes automatism. A voice too deep, too shrill, or too rich in harmonics is more deformed by telephonic transmission than a voice whose average frequencies are situated within the telephonic bands and do not pose any difficult problem to equipment relative to transmodulation. Normality becomes a norm. And the average characteristic becomes superior in a community wherein values have a statistical sense. It seems like part of what he's saying here is that in this second sort of inner individual relation between uh, the human and the machine, in which the human is subordinated to the machine, uh, information kind of only has the the sense in which it's used in information theory. It's like the the transmission of signals. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, he, he, so he defines two, um, 
two sort of opposed ways of relating the human being to the machine, which both are um, destructive, as he calls them. Um, so he, the one, the one is where you just sort of subordinate the machine to the human being, as um, uh, and and so the the machine is just taking the place of a slave, um, and uh, so here the machine is is just sort of uh, uh, an object on which the human being can sort of project their fantasies. Um, and so he talks about the uh, demolition derbies and so on as, as like this fantasy of uh, power of destroying. Um, and then the other one is, the other attitude is the one that subordinates the human being to the machine in, uh, in this communal function. Um, and so in this, um, in this attitude, um, there's, there's no, um, relationship between human beings except through these signals, um, that are transmitted by a machine of some kind. Uh, and, um, I think we can think here of, uh, like some of the, uh, email systems that Gmail does this. And I think Outlook as well, where if you open an email, it gives you like predicted responses like you know thanks for sending this or whatever um that it thinks makes sense based on the content of the email um and so of course the more people use these um predictive responses the more uh communication tends to fall into um sort of preset patterns uh and um the the danger of this um of this type of stereotyped communication is that anything that lies outside of um, the sort of predefined set of signals is excluded or made much more difficult. Um, I was thinking, I was just trying to find, um, I think this story that I found here is um, about this topic, but there was, um, there was something um, with um, film, uh, like, color film in particular that uh there were some like technical choice or chemical um choice that was made in like the early 20th century where it was um film was sort of optimized for um uh taking pictures of white people and uh black people's skin uh shows up in especially like dark-skinned people um shows up in uh like sort of um doesn't show up as well on on film um and uh so like any any sort of technical system that um sort of limits the uh predefined set of messages or signals that can be received it it necessarily um excludes certain people from uh or or makes them less uh sort of um uh like treats them as exceptions or or something like that um uh and then it treats other people as like the default setting um uh and so that's this is a an example of of this type of phenomenon um and then he also mentions here um how the machine like in he's thinking i think of a, an industrial setting um where the machine has uh recorders or of some kind that um that monitors the human behavior uh, and 
and subordinates that human behavior to some norm of communal functioning, like efficiency. Uh, and here we can think of, um, uh, I know in Amazon warehouses, they have like um, uh, their, their like handheld device um, that they use that says like, go to row J um, item four or whatever. Um, and it says like, it should take you precisely 76 seconds to walk there. Um, and if you take like 78 seconds, then you, you lose points. Um, and, uh, like the more, the more you, um, take more time to, uh, or like the more points you lose, the, the less likely you are to get shifts in the future and, uh, or get promoted or, or anything like that. Um, so that, uh, your entire behavior in like over your, your whole shift, like every second of your behavior is monitored. Um, and, uh, you have to, you know, meet like this standard, which is like, uh, so anyone who was, um, uh, uh, you know, injured or has a disability or whatever, um, you're, you're, you don't fit into this standard, um, of like, it should take you so many seconds to get this package. Um, that person is punished for um, not being up to the standard or not fitting into the, the standard. Um, so yeah, that's uh, a particularly um, uh, extreme instance of the um, uh, of this type of monitoring. But um, like any any type of factory setting um, or um, um, a lot of different workplace settings involve this type of monitoring where uh, the, the human being is monitored uh, and made to operate um, as if they were a machine. Uh, so uh, um, you're saying that uh, we're, we're start starting extremes uh, um, case of uh, the old days of the USSR in uh, some places in the USA? Um, I think... A lot of these technologies go back to um, the Taylor system uh, from the uh, early 20th century. Um, so Taylor came up with this idea of, um, um, Frederick Taylor, I think was his name, um, came up with this idea that um, factories would be more efficient if you broke down every task into like the simplest possible components, and then you could measure those components and um, uh, set up a, a time norm for each component. So like, you know, picking up a box should take one second and then bringing the box to the shelf should take three seconds and whatever, like each step of the process should take a certain amount of time. Early on 20th century, that's the same time of the USSR, right? Yeah, and I was just going to mention, yeah, so the in the Soviet Union, they they um, adopted some of the Taylor system um, methods to uh, to try Is to increase productivity. Is so, sorry, what's his full name? Like, do you mind? Like, I'm going to try to erase it. Uh, it's Frederick Taylor, I believe, is his first name, Frederick. Um, yeah, yeah, because I heard the same thing with Stalin. He did it on the... Um, uh, the drivers of the train stations he used to, if they arrived uh, one minute late uh, with their train, he used to like threaten the drivers. Yeah, I don't know about 
trains um, in particular, but I know that um, um, in factories in uh, in the '30s they had some pretty um, pretty um, uh, strict rules about um, uh, lateness. Like you could be, um, I think, if you were like 20 minutes late, you were defined as being um, like absent for your shift, and you could be fired um, uh, for being for being late. Um, um, yeah, so the, these um, sort of principles of um, subordinating the human being to a machine uh, sort of uh, developed in uh, uh, the 20th century U.S. were sort of exported around the world um, over the course of the 20th century. Oh, so he's American, um, Frederick yeah. Taylor. Yeah. Yeah, there have like there's always this struggle between like uh, how to. Um, uh, avoid uh, turning humans into machines and like uh, there's a few countries in Scandinavia that decided to uh, um, uh, like introduce uh, less hours of work and like you can take a nap during work and uh, uh, you can work less uh, uh, like uh, maybe take uh, four days off a week uh, stuff like that there's always this uh, struggle between which one fits uh, humans more yeah, and this this also ties in with um, what we were talking about earlier in connection with um, um, the Marxist theory of um, the development of of technology, um, because um, one of the key struggles in the nineteenth century for workers was precisely around the length of the working day, um, where you had factories that were working like sixteen plus hour shifts. Um, uh and and workers of course um were not especially happy to be working 16 hour shifts uh and eventually were able to form uh organizations that were able to um pressure the 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 british state into um imposing uh uh working hour restrictions like the 10 hours bill um i forget exactly when that was passed but um restricting the length of the working day um, and so, and, and then, as I mentioned, this, uh, this development, uh, this introduction of, of the 10 hours bill, uh, led to the introduction of, um, machinery in a lot of industries that had previously not been mechanized. Uh, so there's, uh, again, this interaction between the social organization and the, um, the, uh, technological development, um, in this case, driven in part by uh, workers just wanting to have some time to themselves and and not be in the fact the factory, uh, you know, most of the working day. Yeah, I saw uh, uh, this guy uh, from Ontario. He was like in a, a few philosophy classes, and uh, he's like part of the Italian anarchist bunch. And they they were like. Um, like he kept fresh pressuring in every class uh, to do a kind of a you know like a militarized almost philosophy class and everyone got annoyed and like so many classes got cancelled because of that one person you know like he was acting really fascist and like like almost all the students ran away so I guess uh, like his idea didn't wasn't so successful. <laughs> Yeah, I don't, I don't know um, exactly who that was, but yeah, that's interesting.
there are some uh, some bunch that call themselves Italian anarchists. I I really didn't Google them yet. I have no idea what they do, but like this is what I heard. They they keep calling them Italian anarchists. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, let's let's um, keep going forward um, with the text. Uh, so let's. I can read the next bit here. Uh, so we're at the bottom of 422. However, these two inverse attitudes of stereotypy and fantasy, of private tyranny and communal slavery with respect to the technical object, stem from the fact that the relation between man and machine is not really dissymmetrical. It is a double assimilation, not a constructive analogical relation. Conversely, let's consider the noble relation between man and machine. It seeks to degrade neither of the terms. Its essence resides in the fact that this relation has the value of being. It has a doubly genetic function, both towards man and towards the machine. Whereas in the two preceding cases, the machine and man were already fully constituted and defined the moment they would have encountered one another. In a veritable complementary relation, man must be considered as an incomplete being made whole thanks to the machine. Whereas the machine in turn discovers its unity, finality and connection with the ensemble of the technical world through its relation with man. Man and machine are mutually mediating because the machine possesses in its characteristics spatial integration and the capacity to preserve information through time, whereas man, through his faculties of knowledge and his power to act, knows how to integrate the machine into a universe of symbols that is not spatial-temporal and into which the machine could never be integrated by itself. A relation is established between these two asymmetrical beings due to which a double participation is realized. There is a chiasmus between two universes which would remain separate. It could be noted that the machine is based on human effort and it, that it is, it is therefore part of the human world. But in fact, the machine incorporates a nature. It is made of matter and it is directly inserted into spatial temporal determinism. Even though it originates with human labor, it conserves a relative independence with respect to its constructor. The machine can pass into other hands. It can become the link in a series that its inventor or constructor did not predict. Nevertheless, a machine only takes on its meaning in an ensemble of coordinated technical beings. And this coordination can only be thought by man and constructed by him, since it is not given in nature. Man confers on the machine an integration into the constructed world within which it finds its functional definition through its relation to other machines. But it is the machine, and each machine in particular, that confers stability and reality onto this constructed world. The machine gives back to this constructed world part of the natural world, i.e. the condition of its materiality, its spatial temporality, without which this constructed world would have no depth or consistency. In order for this condition between man and machine to exist, there must be a twofold condition in man and in machine. In man, there must be a technical culture formed by intuitive and discursive, inductive and deductive knowledge of the apparatuses that constitute the machine, implying the awareness of the technical schemas and qualities materialized in the man must be familiar with the machine according to a knowledge that is adequate to its uh, adequate in its principles, details, and history. At that point, the machine will no longer be for him a simple instrument or a servant that never protests. Every machine crystallizes a certain number of efforts, intentions, and schemas, and it invests a certain aspect of the nature of chemical elements. Its characteristics are mixtures of three things, technical schemas, properties of the elements of the constituents of matter, and the laws of the transformation of energy. True technical culture requires a scientific knowledge. It teaches us not to hold any particular being in contempt, sorry, any, any technical being in contempt, including much older, in the old-fashioned or antiquated exterior characteristics, True technical culture rediscovers the meaning of a scientific law and the properties of a material element. The technical being grasped in its reality defines a certain mediation between man and the natural world. Technical culture allows us to grasp this mediation in its authentic reality.
a technical taste can develop that is comparable to aesthetic taste and moral refinement. Many men have primitively and crudely in their relation to machine uh, behave primitively and crudely in their relation to machines due to a lack of culture. The stability of a civilization that includes an increasingly large number of technical beings would be impossible to attain unless the relation between man and machine will be at equilibrium and imprinted with wisdom according to an interior restraint that only a technical culture can provide. The frenzy for possessing machines and the excessiveness of their utilization is comparable to a veritable disruption of mores. Machines are treated as consumer goods by a crude and ignorant humanity, which passionately throws itself on everything that presents a character of external and created novelty to just as quickly toss them aside as soon as their novel qualities have been exhausted. Cultivated man must have a certain respect for the technical being, precisely because he knows its veritable structure and its real functioning. So here he's defining, um, as opposed to these two attitudes of either subordination of the machine to the human being or subordination of the human being to the machine, he's, he's uh, identifying uh, an attitude in which uh, there's a, a real relation between the human being and the machine. So it, it's a relation that has the status of being in the sense that it's not a fully constituted human being and a fully constituted machine that sort of... Um, uh, appear next to each other, but rather um, the human being and the machine are both transformed in the relation. So the relation is uh, part of what constitutes the the human being and part of what constitutes the um, the machine. Um, and so here, uh, in order to um, operate under this attitude, you have to have something like a technical taste. Um, um, so this is comparable to um, aesthetic taste or moral refinement. So it's it's similar to an appreciation for art or um, uh, um, yeah moral refinement or or uh, an attitude a moral attitude, but it's an attitude towards machines. Um, and and so here um, this is also connected with Simon Don's biography and to some extent because he. Um, he taught classes in uh, the in technology um, at at different um, uh, institutions during his academic career, um, and so he tried to um, instill a sort of uh, technical appreciation in his students, uh, and and it's this attitude of technical appreciation that is required um, to to behave in accordance with this uh, attitude of the. Uh, interaction between the human and the machine. So you have to be able to um, understand the functioning of machines in terms of the technical principles that are at work in uh, in the workings of those machines. Uh, and you have to have uh, a sort of um, attitude of appreciation for them that doesn't uh, necessarily, so it doesn't sort of dismiss um, obsolete machines or obsolete technical equipment as being obsolete, it uh, it doesn't always need to have the the latest model of, of phone or or uh, uh, something along those lines. It um, it allows for uh, an appreciation of something that is no longer um, high tech or at the, the peak of technical development, uh, and and you appreciate it for its own uh, functioning and and how it works rather than saying that this object is obsolete. Uh, 
And uh, in in the other book uh, on the mode of existence of technical objects, he talks about um, having precisely this sort of um, appreciation for obsolete machines or obsolete technical objects uh, and and sort of having an appreciation for those obsolete objects as being um, uh, characteristic of this technical cultivation. Yeah, and uh, Angus has posted in the chat here um, <clears throat> this phrase doubly genetic that he used um, in this passage is uh, is helpful for thinking what he called dialectic in the last volume. Um, yeah, I think I think that's uh, um, I think that's a good remark um, because so we saw in towards the end of uh, volume one where he. Um, sort of surprisingly used this term dialectic uh, for for exactly this type of relationship where you have um, these two terms that each constitute each other or that are uh, constituted at the same time out of this relationship. Um, uh, whereas in, in other parts of the text, he opposes uh, his own system to uh, the dialectic and, and he sort of criticizes the dialectic for um, having this moment of negativity that he doesn't think is uh, is present in uh, the transductive process, um, but yeah, in in that passage, he he takes on the term dialectic, and I think we can probably identify or at least compare that usage of the term dialectic to this um, this phrase, the doubly genetic. Okay, so let's go on to the next bit. Um, if someone else would like to read from the truth and authenticity. I can read. The truth and authenticity of the machine must correspond to man's cultural refinement. However, insofar as the human taste, as human taste is corrupted, industrial civilization cannot produce truly authentic machines because this production is subject to uh, subjected to trending commercial conditions. It then must contort itself to the conditions of opinion and collective taste. However, if we consider the machines that our civilization allows the individual to use, we will see that their technical characteristics are obliterated and concealed by an impenetrable rhetoric, covered over by a mythology and a collective magic that can hardly be elucidated or demystified. Today, a good portion of contemporary machines used in everyday life are nothing more than instruments of flattery. There is a sophistry of presentation that gives, that seeks to give a magical spin to the technical being in order to lull the individual's active powers to sleep and lead him into a hypnotic state wherein he experiences the pleasure of commanding a throng of mechanical slaves that are not very faithful or diligent, but are always flattering. An analysis of the luxurious characteristic of technical objects would reveal what deceptiveness they hold. For many apparatuses, the fetishism of the control panel conceals the poverty of technical devices and the singular ignorance of their fabrication is hidden underneath an impressive streamlining. Sacrificing itself to a depraved taste, technical construction is an art of facade and sleight of hand. The state of hypnosis extends from purchase from the purchase to the utilization. In commercial propaganda itself, the technical being is already adorned with a certain communal signification. To buy an object is to acquire a title of belonging to a certain community. This is to aspire to a type of existence characterized by the possession of this object. The object is coveted as a sign of communal recognition, symbolon, symbol, in the Greek sense of the term. Then the, then the state of hypnosis persists in its utilization, and the object is never known in its reality, but merely for what it represents. Consequently, besides this 
besides the severe constraints that it imposes on the individual, the community offers a certain compensation that prevents the individual from revolting and having a keen awareness of his problems. The ever-latent state of restlessness is always deferred through technical hypnosis, and the individual's life ebbs and flows in a balancing act between the constraints of social rigidity and the gratifying states that the community procures through technical incantation. This state is stable since the commercialization of industry finds an easier path in the action upon collective opinion than in veritable research and real technical perfections, which would have no commercial values because they would remain misunderstood by the majority of people who are only informed by way of commercial pathways. To break this vicious circle, it is not enough to say that man must direct the machine instead of allowing himself to be enslaved by it. It must be understood that if the machine enslaves man, this is to the extent that man degrades the machine by turning it into a slave. If instead of seeking states of hypnosis in the machine or a simple source of marvels for the ignorant, man associates the machine with states in which he is veritably active and creative, as is the case in scientific research, the communal aspect of the machine can disappear. If we consider the machines used in scientific research, we will see that even when they utilize a very complex automatism, they do not enslave man and are no longer enslaved by him. They are not the object of consumption, and they are no longer beings meant to produce a labor that is predetermined in its results, expected and demanded by the community that forces its obligations on the individual. Should I just finish this section? Yeah, might as well. Okay. Under these conditions, the machine is integrated into the causal chain of human effort. The goal of this effort surpasses the machine that is put into action. The machine then realizes the mediation with respect to the object of research and not with respect to the community. It is erased from the individual's field of perception. The individual does not act on the machine, he acts on the object and observes the object through the machine. Due to the machine, a cycle is established that goes from the object to the subject and from the subject to the object. The machine extends and adapts the subject and the object to one another by way of a complex interlinking of causalities. The machine is a tool insofar as it allows for the subject to act on the object, and it is an instrument insofar as it brings signals coming from the object to the subject. It conveys, amplifies, transforms, translates, and conducts an action in one direction and an information in an inverse direction. It is both tool and motor at the same time. The reciprocal characteristic of this twofold relation ensures that man is not alienated in the presence of, of this machine. He remains man, and it remains machine. The position of man and the position of machine are not symmetrical with respect to the object. The machine displays an immediate connection to the object, whereas man has immediate relation to it. The object and man are symmetrical with respect to the machine. Man creates the machine so that it can establish and develop this relation. This is why the relation to the machine is only legitimate if it flows through the machine without having as its destination a human in its communal form, but rather an object. The relation of man to machine is asymmetrical because this machine establishes a symmetrical relation between man and the world. So it's, this is a little bit confusing to me because the, as you noted at the beginning of this, se this uh, session earlier, he distinguished between the tool and the machine. Now he's saying that, you know, and if it's sort of properly appreciated, the machine is at least part tool, um, at least in the direction of from the subject to the object of research. Yeah, he he's here, um, I guess, qualifying that distinction between um, tool and machine that he made earlier in this in this uh, section. Um, so I think 
when he talks about a machine being a tool here, um, he means um, that in this uh, sort of this attitude of the where the human being and the machine have this doubly genetic relation to each other, um, the the machine serves to extend human capacities rather than um, to subordinate them or be subordinated to them. Um, so the the tool in the sort of strict sense of the term, uh, like a hammer or whatever, is um, is just an extension, a, a sort of simple extension of a living being uh, uh, and its capacities. Uh, and then a machine uh, is distinct from that in the sense that it stands in for the human individual uh, or replaces the human and it has its own motive power and so on. Uh, but then in, at a, a sort of higher level, um, when we have this adequate relation to the machine, uh, we can sort of treat the um, the machine as an extension of human capacities in a way in in a similar way to which the hammer or other simple tools um, are an extension of human capacities. So I think that's sort of the the sense of um, of what he talks about of what he means here. Um, yeah, maybe we can link the, so Angus is posting here, um, maybe we can link the misuse of machines to parasitism in volume one. In this misuse, the machine serves the human, but in a way that, that it decreases human capacity by inducing a trance as, yeah, I think that's a, an interesting um, suggestion. So like in parasitism, you have um, two uh, entities that should be individuals or that um, are in in some degree individuals, but they they sort of added together to produce less than two full individuals or or two like complete individualities, we could say, um, because the the parasite um, uh, sort of subtracts from the capacities of the host, um, and so in the same way here, um, when you have machines uh, subordinated to human beings. Um, they sort of subtract from the capacities of the the human being, even though uh, we have this feeling of uh, superiority and dominance and and so on uh, in in having these machines that that serve us. Um, at the same time, we uh, we are diminished by using the machines in this way uh, and sort of um, allowing ourselves to be hypnotized by by this. Um, servitude of the machine. And here, I think there's an interesting bit uh, at the beginning of this passage that we just read um, about how this, um, there's a sort of vicious circle involved in uh, this, um, what he calls the corrupted tastes of, of, of human beings. Uh, and, and so you have um, the uh, this sort of consumer relationship to the machine where where you treat the machines as as slaves um, is uh, uh, sort of reinforced by um, commercial um, commercial propaganda as he puts it here or advertising in general um, so advertising uh, sort of treats the machine as like here is um, this new thing that's going to make your life so much easier and so much better you're gonna have so much more free time or you're going to enjoy yourself more or whatever, um, it, it always um, presents the machine as uh, something that um, 
allows you to uh, enjoy yourself more or to uh, something that serves you. Uh, advertising doesn't tend to um, present like uh, technical diagrams of how your phone or your car or whatever functions. Um, uh, it doesn't provide people with uh, an understanding of the technical object. It, it presents them with a sort of fantasy image of this technical object that's going to make the, your life so much better. Um, and uh, and then there's a, this vicious circle because um, precisely because of the this corrupted taste or this um, desire to have this machine that will um, serve you, uh, the people that are making machines or the companies that are making machines have no incentive to um, to do anything different than to produce new objects that have new ways of serving you. Um, so this corrupted taste leads to um, the production of these new technical objects that are um, have these new and exciting ways of serving rather than of developing um, uh, real, really um, new technical principles of operation. Uh, and, um, and then because the, the producers of these machines uh, produce them for the sake of this corrupted taste, that means that the, the audience or the, the rest of the society is um, sort of um, has that taste uh, reinforced so it's this sort of vicious circle um, where there, there doesn't seem to be any way out of it. Um, but the one sort of uh, um, the one sort of exception to this uh, use of the machine is uh, scientific research, as as he understands it here. So in scientific research, you have use of sometimes very uh, sophisticated and elaborate uh, technical objects. Um, but at the same time, the operator of that technical object has a um, uh, an understanding of how they function. So you can think of something like a, a particle accelerator or something like that. It's, it's not just um, uh, it's not something that you can go to the store or um, order on Amazon or whatever. Um, it's uh, it doesn't have that same commercial relationship or consumer relationship. Um, that other technical objects have. It's something that you have to design for yourself or um, uh, put together um, uh, in, in some sort of uh, scientific research project. Um, and it, uh, it puts the human being in connection with something extra human, uh, this hidden aspect of nature that we saw at the beginning of the section that the technician has access to. Uh, and so the scientific researcher um, has this um, very different relationship to the machine or to the technical object in general that allows for um, uh, a much more um, uh, a much more uh, healthy or appropriate relationship to uh, technical objects. It seems like this is another instance of uh, like a real middle that puts into communication or explains the relationship between two extreme terms, which here are subject as scientist and the object as nature. And I, it seems like throughout these two volumes, the middle is associated with like intelligibility, like the yellow, green and, and human vision. Um, or just like the idea of thinking 
thinking the relation primarily before we think the terms. And it seems like what the machine does here is make the make the object intelligible to the scientist. Yeah, so this is the um, the other side. So we talked about the tool aspect of the machine insofar as the tool or, or insofar as the machine um, serves to extend human capacities and allows the human being to act on the machine, on the, sorry, on the object. Um, but there's the other side where the machine serves as an instrument. Um, and here it, it conveys information from the object to the subject. Um, and uh, so this is the other side of the machine that, that is more sort of prevalent in uh, scientific research as opposed to um, the sort of consumer use of machines. Um, so in, in scientific research, the machine or the technical object in general uh, provides a way of uh, uh, gathering information or, or making a, a mediation between the human being and some hidden aspect of nature. It can, you, know, you can think of like an electron microscope or something that allows you to see viruses or tiny entities that, of course, human vision would never be able to see. Um, uh, or you can think of like a, a radio telescope that allows uh, measurements of, you know, uh, distant galaxies and, and so on. Um, um, so you have different um, technical objects uh, uh, extend human uh, perceptive capacities and capacities to uh, uh, absorb information from the environment. Um, uh, and these technical objects extend that capacity and put, put us in touch with um, hidden aspects of nature. And so because of this, uh, capacity to mediate between um, between the human being as subject and the natural entity as object uh, is that mediatory capacity that um, that makes the technical object more than just an object of consumption. And yeah, we've seen throughout uh, volume one and and again here in volume two how he he always wants to um, sort of find a middle term between two extremes, uh, but not like a, a mixture or a compromise or something like that, but um, a genetic middle. So it's um, a middle term, uh, like precisely that yellow-green portion of the visual spectrum that um, out of which the two extreme terms will be generated uh, in this genetic way. Um, and uh, this is sort of his general schema for how we understand uh, a domain, how we come to grasp the functioning of um, some sort of um, domain of existence uh, is, is precisely that, that middle term that, that generates the two extremes. Um, I'm going to suggest that we stop here. Um, it's a, a little bit early, um, but the next section is about 10 pages long. So I think we can probably, uh, sorry, uh, no, about eight pages long, so we can probably read the whole thing next time. Um, and so um, this gives us a, a good stopping place for today, if that's okay with everyone. That sounds good to me. Okay, uh, so thank you everyone for uh, coming out and for participating. Um, hope to see you next week, uh, and then we'll, we, we should finish this text next week. Uh, and then uh, the following week, we'll start on the history of the notion of the individual, which is um, uh, this giant, it's like 150 pages, um, 
uh, it's basically like a, a mini book uh, on the history of philosophy um, with the, the notion of the individual as like the key principle. Yeah, it's basically all of Western philosophy, starting from the pre-Socratics up until uh, Nietzsche. Um, I think, yeah, I think Nietzsche might be one of the last ones that he talks about. Okay, so thanks again and uh, see you next week.